What's up, everyone? Welcome to Weekends. Usually weekends with Anna and Michael, but today Michael's on a much deserved break, and we have Nando Vila joining us. Nando's a good friend of mine, um, also a good friend of Michael's, and it's awesome to have you on the show. What's up? Hey, thanks for having me. Filling it, big shoes to fill, but I'll do my best, I promise. You know your stuff. You know your stuff. I'm really excited uh, for today's show. Of course, Michael's going to be missed. But uh, we are going to have a great conversation later in the show with Nomi Prinz, who actually used to be a Wall Street insider, uh, but later quit Wall Street and became a whistleblower of sorts um, and has been sharing much needed information, some intel about what goes mm. on in Wall Street. And more importantly, what's happening with our economy right now? I'm sure most people have noticed a disconnect uh, between the stock market and what average Americans are dealing with with this pandemic. So how do you you know, explain that disconnect? Luckily, Nomi Prince will explain it to us. Nando, you're going to talk about the do-nothing Democrats because Mm. they certainly exist and should be called out. And later on in our SALT segment, we will discuss Alan Dershowitz and uh, his latest op-ed defending his good friend, uh, Ghislaine Maxwell, of course, also former girlfriend for Jeffrey Epstein. Yes. So I thought I'd like start off the show today, Nando, by asking you, like, what's been on your mind lately? What's something that's been taking up some of your mental energy? Well, I'm glad we're talking to Nomi Prince because the thing that I'm obsessed with that I can't wrap my mind around is the scale of the crisis is just so large and unprecedented. I mean, we're probably, I mean, we might be going through the biggest economic crisis in the history of capitalism. And I feel like I'm going insane because the entire political class is just nowhere near up to the challenge. I mean, it's just... It, it really feels like we're falling off a cliff and everyone's just kind of like watching around like, hmm, that's, yeah, wow, that sucks. And no one can do anything about it, right? Like it's not just the coronavirus and the, you know, 100 plus thousand deaths in America. It's just the scale of the economic crisis is just so big. And what's needed to be done is so big and, 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 and unprecedented, at least in modern American history. And the feeling that no one is up to the challenge has me going crazy. So I'm, I'm happy that we're talking to Nomi to, to help me sort through all that. Well, look, if you're worried about it, as as most people who are paying attention are, um, have no fear, uh, because it was just recently reported that uh, Biden has uh, chosen to side with uh, moderate economic policies while mm. completely ignoring what the progressive task force involving Bernie Sanders is supposed to help accomplish, which is more progressive economic policy. Uh, maybe we'll talk to Nomi Prince about that a little bit as well. But yeah, it is it is scary. And I remember right as uh, TYT was going to close its offices and have people work remotely, you and I hosted a show together. And you just like, you were so befuddled by what was going on because you're like, I don't know how, like, there is never going to be a normal after this because everything is just stopping. Some businesses have reopened, but tens of millions of Americans are still unemployed and people are just going about their lives as if this isn't happening right now. And it's insane. Yeah. I mean, just how you do this without like a massive government intervention into the economy, like how you plan on doing this without that is just is is crazy. I mean, that's why we're seeing the as soon as the businesses reopened, the, the spike in the cases already went up again because the government has done literally nothing like, you know, so it's just I again, I, I, I feel like a sense of vertigo and insanity just thinking about it. Um, so that's that's what like dominates my mind these days. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, one other thing that's been, I think, dominating both of our minds lately is uh, this insane story regarding Russia oh, yeah. allegedly paying the Taliban bounties for U.S. soldiers. And I really do want to throw some cold water on that story and give you guys um, some evidence as to why I think that we should not buy into the narrative that's being pushed out there by the same hawks who uh, put us in Iraq, who put us in Afghanistan in the first place. I think that we should be equipped and armed with as much knowledge as possible to not fall victim to the nonsense that we're seeing from like the Liz Cheney's of the world, honestly. Like it's it's insane um, how easily people, I wouldn't say on the left, but how easily liberals uh, fall for this kind of bait. So let's discuss. A few weeks ago, National Security Advisor, former National Security Advisor Susan Rice made what I would argue was an insane statement during an interview with Andrea Mitchell on MSNBC. Now, the interview touched on these allegations by uh, intel agencies arguing that Russia was paying the Taliban uh, bounties for U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Now, there was inconsistencies when it came to the intel. Uh, it had not been proven, at least uh, not to anyone who's at all skeptical about this type of info or intel. And so here is Susan Rice arguing, you know, we actually make a lot of decisions based on faulty intel. Not a big deal. Take a look. The intelligence on Osama bin Laden being in that hideaway in Pakistan was 50-50. 50-50, and President Obama went, went after bin Laden, and you know the results. Is, is intelligence ever 100% or most no, likely the, the, 100%? No, Andrea, look, I was national security advisor. I can tell the American people with certainty that we don't ever or very, very rarely have 100% certainty. And that's not what we're aiming for. We, in this business of protecting the American people and our servicemen and women, have to do so often with imperfect information. So the fact that she admitted that they're not looking for 100% certainty and that they operate based on imperfect information should tell the American people a lot. That portion of the interview got absolutely no attention, but it does give you an inside look into how the intelligence community works, how our foreign policy decisions are made. And when you think about that, you should also consider, right, the financial incentives behind acting on faulty or incomplete intel. You should think about the number of civilians who die as a result of our aggression abroad. And this has led to all sorts of people calling for all out war with Russia, which would be absolutely disastrous. We'll get to that in just a minute. But for now, let's focus on how questionable this so-called intel really is. So Susan Rice wasn't the only person person who admitted that the intelligence is not bulletproof. In fact, a top U.S. general also admitted that there were some issues, uh, some problems with this intelligence. Uh, according to CNN, General Frank McKenzie, the commander of the U.S. Central Command who oversees operations in the Middle East and Afghanistan, said that the intelligence concerning Russian operatives offering bounties to Taliban-linked militants was, quote, very worrisome, end quote, but that the information wasn't solid enough to hold up in a court of law. So it's important to know that the intel is not solid. But this story has been dominating news cycles as if it's already demonstrably true. It is not. After reading the intelligence reports, McKenzie also admitted, and this is a direct quote, I just didn't find that there was a causative uh, link there. 
In this case, uh, he continues, there just wasn't enough there. I sent the intelligence guys back to continue to dig on it. And I believe they're continuing to dig right now. And look, this is a perfect narrative for liberals who want to oust Donald Trump because the whole argument is that Donald Trump was briefed on this and that he did nothing about it because he's in bed with Vladimir Putin. I don't know if Trump was actually briefed on this. I don't really care if Trump was briefed on this. What I do care about, though, is whether or not the intel that the media is reporting on as if it's true really is true. And based on what I've read through a very skeptical lens, it is not. It has not been proven. And I think that it's incredibly destructive and irresponsible to report on it as if this has already been proven. Now, McKenzie does seem to operate on the same flawed logic uh, heard from Susan Rice. Uh, During uh, his statements, he also said the intelligence wasn't proved to me. It was proved enough to worry me. It wasn't proved enough that I take it to a court of law. That's often true in battlefield intelligence. And quite honestly, that's part of the problem. We rely on faulty intel to carry out drone strikes, signature strikes. These are the types of attacks that happen abroad that lead to unnecessary deaths of civilians. And then, you know, during the Obama administration, the argument was we need to do this in the fight against terror and civilians who die are collateral damage. And this perpetuates uh, more war, more hostility toward the United States, and it's immoral, unethical, and just plain wrong. So uh, warmongers are already beating the war drums uh, due to this incomplete, inconsistent, faulty in- intel. And uh, the Republicans over at the Lincoln Project, who absolutely despise Donald Trump, have exploited this storyline for this ad. Now, I'm going to show you a portion of it, and it's important for you to focus on the very last part where it's clear what these, you know, Bush Cheney era Republicans are hoping for moving forward. Months ago, Donald Trump learned that the Russians were paying bounties for dead American soldiers in Afghanistan. He chose to do nothing about it. Any commander in chief with a spine would be stomping the living shit out of some Russians right now. Diplomatically, economically, or if necessary, with the sort of asymmetric warfare they're using to send our kids home in body bags. Asymmetric warfare. (laughs) So it doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise me at all that uh, the same people who are very supportive of uh, the Bush administration and his foreign policy would now turn around and start uh, goading the United States to engage in absolute warfare with Russia, which, again, would be absolutely disastrous. We also need to be skeptical of the timing of this so-called intel, because on June 27th, the Trump administration was actually finalizing plans to pull 4,000 U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. I don't agree with Trump on pretty much anything, with the exception of some foreign policy decisions. Now, he did not understand why we still had troops in Afghanistan. We've been there for far too long, so he wanted to start withdrawing troops. But of course, the military-industrial complex didn't like that. People like Representative Liz Cheney, Dick Cheney's daughter, didn't like that. And so uh, the Trump administration would have reduced... uh, the number of troops from 8,600 to 4,500 and would be the lowest number since the very earliest days of the war in Afghanistan, which began in 2001. It would pave the way for a U.S. exit, which Donald Trump remains determined to achieve. Now, in response, Liz Cheney issued a statement on her website, and here's what the statement said. 
The U.S. Taliban deal allows for premature troop withdrawal that is not conditions-based. Afghanistan Partnership and Transparency Act, which was uh, an amendment proposed by Cheney, will help ensure that Congress and the American people are fully informed about America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and the impact it is having and will have on our security. So already uh, they had proposed an amendment to the uh, National Defense Authorization Act. And then all of a sudden, two days later, we hear about this intel. (laughs) Oh, gee, isn't that convenient? Um, So now with this uh, renewed National Defense Authorization Act, uh, the amendment that Cheney proposed is included. And the House Armed Services Committee uh, voted overwhelmingly in favor of this amendment, jointly sponsored by Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado and Congresswoman uh, Cheney of Wyoming, prohibiting the expenditure of monies to reduce the number of U.S. troops deployed in Afghanistan below 8,000 without a series of conditions being met first. For these troops, according to Glenn Greenwald, for these troop reductions from Afghanistan to be allowed, uh, the Defense Department must be able to certify, among other things, that leaving Afghanistan will not increase the risk for the expansion of existing or formation of new terrorist safe havens inside Afghanistan and will not compromise or otherwise negatively affect the ongoing United States counterterrorism mission against the Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, and associated forces. So it's the same talking point that we've heard from these hawkish lawmakers who have loved engaging in these types of conflicts abroad. Oh, this is all about our fight against terror. We absolutely need to be there. But as you guys all know, uh, that is the never-ending storyline to uh, persuade Americans to be supportive of these wars. But luckily, polling has shown that Americans are sick of it. When Trump was considering war with Iran, his own supporters started to rebel against him, which is pretty rare to see. And so the appetite for war certainly isn't there. I think that there were Trump haters and Trump supporters alike who are actually very supportive of his efforts to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan. But now all of a sudden we have this questionable intel uh, that was uh, further amplified by the mainstream media. So I also want to talk about the fact that there has already been attempts to link Russia to the Taliban. Uh, Years ago, it was alleged that Vladimir Putin was helping to arm the Taliban against U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. And surprisingly, there was a hearing on this. The hearing took place in 2017, and General Jim Mattis actually testified before the House Armed Services Committee and argued that these accusations really don't make much sense. Take a look. So I think that this is very difficult to discern why they would do something that's not in their best interest. I'm not ready to say precisely what it is. Uh, I want to see more evidence about how deep the support is. Uh, It's just hard to believe uh, Iran's had their diplomats killed by Taliban. Russia certainly has had enough problems coming out of uh, terrorism in in South Central Asia. So this doesn't make sense. So there's Jim Mad Dog Mattis, someone (laughs) who isn't, you know, really... uh, um, a softy when it comes to war, saying mm, this uh, these accusations don't really make sense. But he wasn't the only one. So Lieutenant General uh, Vincent Art Stewart, R. Stewart, also said during these hearings, "I have not seen real physical evidence of weapons or money being transferred." 
Now, when the bounties were first reported, um, and you know this was in the New York Times, there was some you know transparency about how the intelligence community didn't necessarily agree. The agencies within the intelligence community didn't necessarily agree. So another official, according to the Times, said there was broad agreement that the intelligence assessment was accurate with some complexities because different aspects of the intelligence, including interrogations and surveillance data, resulted in some differences among agencies and how much confidence to put in each type. So I bring that up because on the very first day, people didn't really pay much attention to this. There was already some inconsistency among the intelligence community, but that wasn't reported in detail. There was very little transparency in terms of what the disagreements were. But what I do know is that we should be skeptical about this type of stuff. We should be skeptical of any type of storyline that encourages our you know, foreign policy to keep troops in any given country, especially in Afghanistan. And we should consider the type of toll these types of foreign policy decisions take on Americans here, as well as civilians abroad. Because as I've shared in a previous commentary segment for this show, the military industrial complex has financial incentives. The Pentagon uh, supports more war. Uh, The defense contractors, the private military contractors, make a lot of money in producing weapons for the military, which means that we engage in more war for that incentive alone. And we produce so many weapons that there's a massive inventory that the Pentagon doesn't even know what to do with. So they transfer that inventory over to local police departments, thus making those police departments far more militarized against civilians here in our own country. And finally, one more video to show you guys. Um, Here is Colin Powell, of all people, throwing cold water on this whole Russia-Taliban narrative. Take a look. Our military commanders on the ground uh, did not think that it was as serious a problem as the newspapers were reporting and television was reporting. It it got kind of out of control before we really had an understanding of what had happened. I'm not sure we fully understand now. But General McKenzie, who is the sink, as I call him in the military, he was commander in chief. He has indicated that he did not think that this was of that level of importance to us. Remember, it's not the intelligence community that's going to go fight these guys. It's the guys on the ground. It's our troops. It's our commanders who are going to go deal with this kind of a threat using intelligence that was given to them by the intelligence community. But that has to be analyzed. It has to be adjusted. So uh, I I do appreciate that Colin Powell uh, told the truth about what's really going on and how the hysteria in the media uh, was definitely irresponsible, to say the least. And so, Nando, I want you to jump in because I know that you've been skeptical of, uh, you know, these stories that were published for good reason. I mean, the United States and the intelligence communities uh, linked to the United States have uh, put out all sorts of intel that, of course, benefited uh, the financial interests of our military industrial complex and also uh, led to the United States overthrowing all sorts of democratically elected leftist leaders, including uh, what just happened to Evo Morales in Bolivia. So, you know, you need to have that type of international context as well. But it's just it's infuriating to see how We keep falling for the same nonsense over and over again. And due to how much liberals despise Trump, they will latch on to any, any storyline, which could actually be much more damaging uh, further down the road. 
Yeah, and I want people to understand when they read something like this in the New York Times, it's not that there's like this intrepid investigative reporter in the New York Times digging through sources and, you know, cultivating these uh, covert sources within the intelligence community, kind of like Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men. No, this is the intelligence community calling some guy at the New York Times being like, hey, uh, we got this. It's 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 they're feeding the intelligence to them. They're not it's not something that the New York Times is prying out of them. Right. Which means that they have some sort of motivation to make this information public. Right. So you have to understand what that motivation is. And as you said, it is very, very not surprising that it comes just as the president is trying to remove troops from Afghanistan. I mean, this is something they do not want. They want forever war. They want to be in these places as many times, as many places as possible with as many troops as possible at all times. And this kind of um, harebrained scheme that, you know, the Russians are paying the Taliban to kill U.S. troops or something, it's, it's, it just fits so neatly into so many narratives that the United States has perpetuated in history to form these casus belli against other countries, right? I mean, starting from the Mexican-American War was started on some bullshit, right? Like about like some U.S. soldier got killed over the Rio Grande or whatever, and lo and behold, oh, we got to invade in Mexico and take half their territory. Uh, the Spanish-American War, uh, the USS Maine blew up in the harbor of, of Havana, and oh, God, we got to invade Cuba and, you know, kill all the evil Spaniards, Gulf of Tonkin in Vietnam, yada, yada, you know, over and over and over again, all of these stories in retrospect turn out to be basically lies. And this is just the, uh, the latest example. I mean, we had Iraq, we had, uh, we had all the stuff in Libya where it, it looked like it was going to be this like genocide, imminent genocide, and we have to, oh, we got to go in there, and then we go in there, and then everything falls apart. This is just the latest thing, the latest thing. And then this idea that the Taliban needs some sort of extra financial motivation to kill U.S. troops. I mean, the U.S. has been in Afghanistan since 2001. We've been there for 19 years. Over 100,000 people have died in Afghanistan. Like, when you're in a war, when you're invading another country, people shoot back. I mean, that's just what happens. It's like this idea that, oh, my God, they're getting an extra 500 bucks ahead to kill. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so... Right. It's It just doesn't pass the... The smell test, you know, right away. It's it's totally. it's so transparent, right? It's it's all just so transparent, and people fall for it because no one has any memory about anything. <laughs> you know, no one remembers what happened in Iraq. This is the exact same playbook that happened in Iraq. You know, all manner of insane stories being published in very respectable outlets like the New York Times, which then turn out to be false in retrospect. Um, and, but mm-hmm. it's, we gotta, we gotta do something about it. We gotta do something about it. And this is just the latest. And so please, I beg people do not fall for this again. Exactly. Just one point that I want to um, piggyback off of. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the Taliban didn't really need any type of incentive from Russia to <laughs> attack U.S. soldiers. Remember, they view U.S. soldiers as an occupying force in Afghanistan. I wonder why so they would do that. I, I think, Maybe because the U.S. So, is occupying uh, Afghanistan. And, and by the way, this also further, I think that the way that this narrative was crafted in some ways is kind of clever, because if there's any examples that they can point to of, of the Afghanistan attacking U.S. soldiers, they can blame it on these Russian bounties. Or if it happens again in the future, would you look at that? It's because of Russia, right? But no, you guys remember the Taliban was already um, attacking U.S. soldiers. Why? 
because they see the United States as an occupying force in Afghanistan. And so, yes, you're totally right, uh, Nando. And like, it's strange when you're begging an audience as smart as a Jacobin audience to not um, buy the BS. But my hope is that, you know, you guys will share this video with some of your more... um, I guess uh, less skeptical friends and uh, they'll be more, you know, they'll find this so-called intel more troubling than the mainstream media has uh, reported as uh, stenographers. So anyway, (laughs) so that's my that's my commentary today. But you are going to talk a little bit about domestic policy today. Yes, I am. Okay, so this week, the zombie Joe Biden campaign trotted out old Uncle Joe, for a conversation with healthcare activist Eddie Barkin. And, you know, this was this something that I watched this video uh, this week, and it, and it made me think about a million things. Because the, the basic dynamic was that Biden and Barkin exchanged a series of pleasantries over the terrible tragedies that have befallen each man. You know, Biden famously lost his wife and daughter in a car crash in 1972, and then his son Beau in 2015 to a brain tumor. And Eddie Barkin was diagnosed with ALS since 2016, and now can only speak through a computer. And, like... This is genuinely tragic stuff that have happened to these guys. I mean, there's, there's, there's no way to get around that. I mean, I don't want to downplay that. I don't want to be crass and, and downplaying the genuine, genuine tragedy that have happened to these two men. But then they got to the nitty gritty and Barkin asked Biden a series of pointed questions about healthcare policy, to which Biden basically responded, I hear you, but nah. Let's take a look. It's no secret that I support Medicare for all. I don't. See how easy that was? The flat no. It's just like, no. You know, and then Adi tries a different way. You know, maybe maybe if he frames the question a different way, maybe this time Biden will agree. Healthcare guaranteed is human right, but taking away the right to have a private plan if you want a private plan, I disagree with. I disagree with. There's three things that I propose that we can do, and we can do it quickly. I support a public option as well. We can get a public option passed, and we can get it passed quickly, number one. So, yeah, that's basically it. They had the conversation. Biden didn't budge on a single thing, and they both went on their merry ways. Literally nothing was achieved by this. But of course, this didn't stop liberals from gushing over this exchange with things like, more of this, please, even friend of the show, Hillary Clinton, got involved tweeting out, quote, health care is a right, not a privilege. This important conversation between Adi Barkin and Joe Biden gives me more confidence than ever we'll realize that truth in our policy soon. And liberals just love this kind of thing. You know, as Adolf Reed says, they love to, quote, bear witness to suffering and not actually do anything about it. They love that Joe Biden can sit down with someone like Adi Barkin and be like, Ah, oh, I hear your pain, man. I feel your pain. Talk to him politely and then just move on with his life and never do anything about the actual issue at hand. They don't actually believe in politics anymore. I mean, remember this classic Hillary Clinton line on healthcare. People who have health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. And yeah, so this all speaks to a larger issue about power and leverage. I mean, there is this school of thought that was pretty prominent on the liberal left, even today, that says that if you play nice with Biden or Hillary, that these like, you know, big 
powerful Democrats, you will at least be able to be in the room to influence decision makers. I mean, this was the logic that Elizabeth Warren had when she refused to endorse Bernie in 2016 and in 2020. She thought, you know, if I endorse Bernie, um, I'll be frozen out of the Hillary administration and I won't be able to exert influence. And that's just flawed. I mean, the only extent that she can exert influence is if they fear her, not if they like her, if that makes sense. I mean, it was and this was, you know, sadly, arguably the logic that Bernie had when he suspended his campaign, you know, that that if he played nice with Joe, at least he'll be able to talk to him and influence him. And like the big concession he got was that he and his people were going to be included in these task forces to devise policy for the Democratic Party. And they did the tax task forces and the results are in and they're not great. You know, this Bloomberg headline pretty much sums it up. It says, quote, Democrats joint policy proposals largely eschews Sanders's agenda. It was a basically a big, bigger way of what happened with Joe Biden and A.D. Barkin. I hear you, but no, you know, and. Listen, I'm, I'm the last person on the planet to hate on Bernie. I love that man with all my heart. I really do. But we have to start realizing that we're not going to get anything meaningful out of this decrepit Democratic Party by playing nice with them. And it's, it's just not going to cut it. They have to fear us. And right now, they just don't. And, you know, I want to be sympathetic because maybe Bernie calculated that we really just don't have the strength right now to make them fear us. I mean, we still only have 10% union density in this country. And until that changes, they will not fear us. Um, But to quote Marco Rubio, let's dispel with this notion that playing nice or being in the room is going to get us anything. It isn't. So Anna, what do you think? Yeah, I I love I love this commentary. Um, And I totally agree with you. I'm glad that you brought up Bernie because uh, if we're going to be critical of Warren's uh, theory of change, which we certainly have been, uh, we also need to uh, take inventory of Bernie, honestly, both during the primary election and after with this whole task force. Look, we, we have to be in a world where we're not discussing what our next move is as if we have power in this country, the working class, the left, we don't have power. We don't. And so we, we decided that like we hit a double and we haven't hit a double. Like we're, we're still on home base. We haven't hit the ball. Yeah. Look at me doing a sports reference. Look at, I don't wow, even know I'm, anything I'm shocked. Yeah. You hit the ball. You, you know what you did, right. Anna, with that sports metaphor, you knocked it out of the park. I did. I did. Um, actually, I don't know. But if you say that I did, awesome. But yeah. um, no, but just going back to the point, I, I just think that, look, when it comes to Joe Biden, right, Joe Biden has made a political calculation and it's actually a pretty smart political calculation. He is going to support the policy proposals of individuals who have power and who have contributed to helping him win if he does win. So as much as I love the viciousness of the ads coming from the Lincoln Project, let's not forget who the Lincoln Project consists of. These are hawkish Republicans. They're not even liberal Democrats. These are hawkish Republicans who put us into all of these never-ending wars in the Middle East. They certainly want to continue on with those policies. They don't want any input from progressives. And they have the power and uh, the the, uh, ability to aid 
Biden materially uh, with his uh, election. And so we need to like really take stock of what's what's happening in this country, what the reality is, and pivot to a place where we're actually organizing and encouraging widespread strikes throughout this country. Really, that's the only way that we can accomplish anything when it comes to um, any type of, type of change economically in the U.S. We can't wait for some Democrat who claims, no. like, or some so-called progressive who claims that they can influence Biden. They can't. We know they can't. Biden's given a middle finger to every single one of the progressives who have tried to influence him. Yeah, and, you know, Alex Perrine tweeted out this week something that is... 1000% true is that there's two very real countervailing forces within the Democratic Party right now. One is that the neocon takeover of the leadership of the Democratic Party that you just described, especially through these things like the Lincoln Project, is a very real thing. And they are absolutely listening to them and they will actually absolutely have power within a Joe Biden administration. The other countervailing force is that the average son or daughter of like a typical progressive in a big city in America is like 10,000 times more radical than their parents are, right? And those two forces are existing within the Democratic Party at the exact same time. It's just like a recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for like a, an absolute rupture at some point. And, you know, it's it, this, these task forces is, is like a, it's a perfect, it's a perfect example of what we're talking about, right? I mean, things as easy and low-hanging fruit as marijuana legalization, they weren't able to, get, mm-hmm. able to get that. Like, they can't even get to marijuana legalization. There is zero political penalty that you pay from the voters for advocating for marijuana legalization. I mean, that, that, that has passed in state after state. Even red states have passed, you know, softening marijuana laws. Like, that is just, like, the easiest thing that could genuinely probably excite a, a segment of the Democratic Party base. They couldn't even get to that. I mean, let alone um, phasing out all fossil fuel production, like oil, all oil and gas production in the United States. Like, they, they don't even do that. Like, they, they did this thing where they're going to get the electrical grid to be carbon neutral by 2035, but still maintaining oil and gas production for other things. And it's like, what? You know, like, that's, that's, yeah. that's nothing. You know, like, at, to the scale of the crisis, that is, is, is nothing. You know, and this idea that we're just going to keep on kind of nudging them, nudging them, and that they're going to be, like, receptive to just be like, well, okay, you know, you're convincing me, you know, like, that's just not how it's going to work. Like, as you say, like, if there are widespread strikes, if we somehow manage to rebuild the labor movement in this country, which is very much on the defensive, very much in retreat, very much cowering and in fear, um, it's it's just, that's the only way that they're going to, we're going to build actual power institutions that can challenge the big power, which is what they have every day. They control the media. They control the financial sector. They control everything, literally everything. We have nothing. Like, look at this. We ha- we're seeing, like, the most widespread popular uprising in America, maybe in 50 years, and we can't even get marijuana legislation on the sort of nominally left of center party in the United States. I mean, that's, that's the scale of, to which, of the, which the powerlessness is. So, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one question that I have and I and I'm hoping that we can answer it um, in our interview with Nomi Prince today is, you know, I do think that the working class, working Americans have unrealized power if they organize and, and, you know, do these mass strikes. It will bring these corporations, these companies who rely on them to their knees. But when you have the Fed pumping, you know, digitized <laughs> money into all of these failing corporations and artificially inflating um, their the value of their shares, how does that come into play, right? And so, does that further 
um, you know, lessen the power of working Americans? I would argue yes, but could there be a strategy to overcome that? And so um, I leave you with that question uh, for our break. And when we come back, we'll have Nomi Prince join us, joining us uh, to discuss uh, what the state of our economy, what the Federal Reserve has been doing, what the future is when it comes to possible stimulus uh, during the pandemic. All incredibly important topics to touch on and address. Maybe we can also talk about Bernie Sanders and whether he's had any influence on Biden as well. So stick around. We'll be right back. Our wonderful guest, journalist and author Nomi Prince joins us. Nomi, how are you? I am great. It's cool to be on. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you're working on your new book, and I know you're busy, so um, I'm tremendously grateful that you took the time to have this important conversation with us. So um, let me just urge everyone who's watching right now to please pick up Nomi's book. It's excellent. Um, Collusion, How Central Bankers Rigged the World. It's certainly relevant uh, for the discussion that we're about to have, including monetary policy, uh, what the Fed is doing, and um, how this pandemic uh, really is making people question uh, the huge disconnect between the stock market and what average Americans are, are dealing with right now. So let me start with the first question. Something happened uh, fairly recently that didn't get much attention, and that was the uh, basically the dismantlement of the Volcker Rule. The Volcker Rule was um, basically a, a regulation that was part of the Dodd-Frank package that uh, tried to rein in some of the risky bets that were being made by big banks with depositors' money. And so that rule was essentially repealed. Can you talk about that a little bit and what it means? Yeah. So, so first of all, that vocal rule was probably the best part of what was a kind of weak uh, act that was um, enacted basically in, in the wake of the financial crisis, which did not separate the bank's ability to use people's deposits um, for the purposes of risky endeavors. But what it did do at the time was it, 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 it prohibited them from using things like investments in private equity funds or in hedge funds or in certain securities like CLOs, um, which are collateralized loan obligations, if they had in their components riskier attachments to things like hedge funds, hedge funds, private equity funds, um, and equity-linked types of product or, or stock types of product. So it, it allows a, a sort of risk mitigation. Um, with respect to what banks could do. Now, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, banks were like, well, we didn't really like that. 
Um, and in fact, it inhibits us from doing what we need to do to help the economy, which actually makes no sense. But at the same time, they took a backdoor approach and they were able to get that component repealed. So now they can actually invest in the tor- sorts of private equity and hedge fund types of companies that are like, you know, scoundering the bottom um, of the the, the pain that's in the economy right now in order to buy assets, properties, et cetera, cheaply with the money that they have and the loans that they also get from these same banks in order to basically take it away from the possibility of people getting it back. So does this set the stage for this type of meltdown that we experienced in 2008, or do you expect it to be far worse? I totally expect it to be worse. And here's why. First of all, we're starting at a position where 2008 happened. And the result of 2008 was disproportionate support to the to the financial committees um, of, the, of the Wall Street banks, to the Wall Street banks themselves, to corporations and so forth. As a result, the debt that was accumulated throughout the market system had already begun this pandemic crisis period at record highs. So our fall from this period was already going to be from a higher height of of debt inflation, of equity market inflation, of just the sheer unprecedented already attempts of the Federal Reserve and other central banks to prop up markets while they're saying that what they're doing is to prop up the economy, which it's not. The markets get disproportional help. That's how we started. You take the pandemic and this period into it, and they've gone into like total overdrive mode. The book of the Fed, its own balance sheet, had increased from a $3.7 trillion level last August when it had already started to pivot to easing because the banks were having liquidity problems already going into the fall. And it grew by the end of 2019 to $4.1 trillion. That was almost the height of where it had been in the wake of the financial crisis of 2008. Since then, it has gone to $7 trillion. It, it zoomed past the highest limit of the financial crisis of 2008. And Bill Dudley, who is the former New York president of the Federal Reserve, of the, of the New York Fed, basically said it could go to $10 trillion. That is more than double the amount of sustenance that the Fed is now offering in many different extra modes than it had done during the financial crisis. You add all that together and that height goes even higher. And so when we fall, it's from that much higher uh, of a position that creates a larger financial crisis, which creates a larger economic crisis. And it creates a bigger distortion, what I call a permanent distortion between the markets and the real Main Street foundational economies. I want to ask about the, the, the bailout that you just talked about, because, you know, those of us who've covered politics for a long time, like we see like these bitter political fights to get these like really small things. Like there's just like endless debates, fights in the media. And then the care package uh, comes out with the, the bailout package from Congress. There's like zero debate, 15 minutes, trillions of dollars, just, you know, just kind of goes from one side or, or just is like what, what, what is like, it's, it's so hard to wrap your mind around it. Like help, Help us understand what that is. Like, how how did they just do that? Like, they could just wipe with the sign of a pen and all of a sudden, was it four or five trillion dollars just get funneled into the investor class? Like, how does that work? And because it it just feels like we're 
it makes me go crazy because it feels like when we argue about politics, we're arguing about like the, the crumbs, whereas like the big things, mm-hmm. these trillions of dollar decisions just happen and we have no input, no say, and they just and they take two seconds to, to, to happen. Yeah, no, that's that, that's a really good point. And even that CARES Act, which was um, touted as being two point three trillion dollars for, you know, for people, for the mainstream economy, when you dug into it, um, as I did, as other reporters did, what you saw was that abundance of sort of quick availability of what was called fiscal stimulus actually had a lot of carve-outs that could be blown up to be monetary stimulus. So, so for example, um, part of that package included seed money from the Treasury Department, from us taxpayers, um, to be given to the Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve basically would, would leverage or multiply it by, by a lot, and they would be able to go out and buy corporate debt, um, that was already existing in the market and that doesn't even exist yet, um, which, which were way beyond the boundaries of what they could do. And that was kind of tucked into the CARES package, as was um, a lot of corporate subsidies and corporate bailouts that went specifically to companies rather than to the actual employees. And yes, it also had the PPP program, um, which also disproportionately went to larger small businesses um, and not individual owned businesses, but that was touted as being a big component of that multi-trillion dollar package, um, as was the extension of unemployment benefits, which again were necessary and, and useful for people, but again, a smaller percentage of that package. So, so the way I look at it is, is, is Congress wanted to help their constituents because they're people, they vote for them, but at the same time, what they really wanted to do is make sure that the larger corporate customers of Congress um, were, were, were filled first. Now, of course, we had a shutdown and there was a need for liquidity and need for money. But the way in which it was done was, yes, yeah, so massive um, and so disproportionately helpful to the companies at their top levels um, to do with what they wanted with that money, with no accountability, no strings attached, really, uh, particularly relative to other countries that had different sorts of fiscal packages, um, that it was really, really momentous that we even had to watch. Um, in addition to that, you know, fights or little mini squabbles about, you know, sort of minutiae on the floors of Congress or on the sort of virtual communication floors of Congress at the time um, was was really astounding and ridiculous. And and the problem with that is, is they can turn around and say, look, we did this. We created a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package. Well, that $2.3 trillion stimulus package, when you you consider it all together, was actually a $6.2 trillion package, of which almost $4.5 trillion goes straight to corporations, the Fed, the Wall Street community, the markets, the evidence of which is how easily markets associated with these entities have just, you know, risen, gone back to prior highs in the case of the NASDAQ, you know, hit new records um, because of that money flowing into them. Um, So real people, on the other hand, don't have that same um, take on that money, right? The real economy doesn't jump back in a quarter. Yeah, we're arguing about Goya beans. Uh, I know it's it's infuriating. It really (laughs) is infuriating Um, because, you know, when you look at the larger picture, um, you know, the whole the way that this type of monetary policy has been sold to average Americans is, well, look, the banks need the liquidity in order to, uh, you know, make these loans to small businesses to help people maybe refinance their mortgages, those types of things. Uh, but there's been absolutely no real follow-up by uh, mainstream journalists on that. And if you do a little digging, you'll find that the banks have actually made it incredibly difficult for the average American to refinance their mortgage, which 
which by the way, right now could mean the difference between being able to keep their home or getting foreclosed on, right? Because the interest rates have gone down so much. And so do you see this type of monetary policy in any way benefiting uh, either Main Street or average Americans? Does this liquidity benefit anyone other than, uh, you know, people who are invested in the stock market, essentially, investors? Yeah, it basically does on the margins, but but doesn't really to, to, to answer the main question. And like, you know, I've talked about this for, for a long time in different manifestations of monetary policy, none of which have been as just immense um, in terms of creating this this permanent distortion, this dislocation uh, between you know, financial economies and, and the real economy. And yes, if everyone at any level of the economy that has a mortgage outstanding could be helped by Congress to push these banks to use the generosity that has been bestowed upon them to just refinance everyone without paperwork. You know, supposedly we we went through that, right? Supposedly um, they're not giving out risky loans anymore like they did before the financial crisis of 2008, right? So they should be more than able to just change the interest rate on their systems and write Mm -hmm. to everyone or inform everyone that has a loan outstanding, particularly particularly with the banks that received the most amount of allocation from the PPP program as a gift for which they made about a billion and a half dollars just in fees, just like in administration fees, to take some of that money and sort of move it to the administration of new mortgage refinancings without people having to go through documents and records and and proving that they have income that they don't have because their jobs have been impaired or they don't have them or they might not have them. People have had to, when they did go to get refinancings, prove that their job was not affected by the coronavirus pandemic in order to get a refinancing, when they could even get an open channel to even have that conversation. Now, that's not something most people could at the time that the pandemic first hit or or now or in the foreseeable future actually um, be solid about about stating. So, yes, All of this would have helped the mainstream economy. And it was not done in such a way when all of this money was sort of given out as it's still available uh, to banks and so forth to be able to do this. And if if you were elected uh, dictator of America... What, how would you have devised a... Reality te- no, I- <laughs> you would ban Goya beans, first of all. Yeah. Uh, second of all, you would... What would you have done to, to deal with the coronavirus pandemic economic, you know, freezing of the economy, essentially? Yes, so I, I would have created a way to get that money into the hands of people. If we look at the comparison, for example, to, to European countries, where um, instead of floating most of the money to the top levels of corporations, where as we have seen over the last financial crisis period, uh, it doesn't get to real people. It doesn't really increase wages or enhance employment or benefits or security or anything like that, even though they were shut down. And we got that money directly into the hands of their employees, as opposed to, you know, here it is, you know, if you continue to rehire people or if you rehire some of them or if you hire different ones that are sort of like two for one or however it is you do it, we'll, we'll sort of you know forgive a lot of it. I, I just wouldn't have done that. I would have provided an avenue. I would have required an avenue to go directly to people whose personal economies were shut down in a more devastating way um, than any of the businesses um, at the top level of this economy that received the disproportionate um, amount of benefit. 
I would have also made all of healthcare um, in, in order to be tested, in order to be um, tested for other types of illnesses outside of our main very bad sort of healthcare system, which in many states was overrun because of the pandemic and could still be overrun in other states um, as we see other waves or the same wave expanding or however it is we look at it. Um, to, to make that accessible as well. Because if you take the possibility of $6 trillion or, or whatever number you put on just this, this immense amount of money um, as, as a quarter, you know, 20% of the um, GDP of the United States, which is a significant sum, that there are ways to get it directly into the hands of people. Um, and, and that wasn't done. I mean, come on, waiting weeks to get a $1,200 check so that President Trump could, like, sign it. You know, that, that, that helps nobody. Um, pay for their basic necessities. So I, I wouldn't have to sign the checks either. <laughs> I think things should have gone out much more quickly. Um, and I would have required any bank that it was in between an individual um, and this money to not receive fees on this, to have those fees go pass through to those individuals um, in order for them to get on top of the money they were receiving um, an extra bit just for the fact that they needed to receive it. Um, and, and sort of the list goes on from there. So I have two questions about two questions left, at least when it comes to monetary policy, because uh, Jerome Powell was kind of like boastful in late June about how the bailouts that uh, some of these banks and companies receive cannot be used uh, for stock buybacks. But later we learned that the money can be used for something else to, again, uh, pay back uh, these investors, give them a, a nice uh, return on investment. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So, so first of all, banks um, and other companies weren't using or going to use this money to buy back their stocks at this period. Part of the reason for that um, was because particularly in the banking community, they assumed that their stock was actually going to get lower and they would be able to buy it back later. So the, the sort of idea that they would miss a quarter um, and the Fed was somehow a hero because of this is kind of ridiculous. They, they were willing uh, to miss that quarter anyway. And as we talked about before, they were certainly willing to miss a quarter of stock buybacks in order to relax regulations that allow them to forever take on more risk. So um, yeah, that was kind of a, a dumb thing to um, sort of say was was a heroistic type of, um, of a maneuver. Um, that said, Jerome Powell is attached to the banking community, and so it's not surprising. Um, in terms of other things that the Fed has done, they have opened the doors to buying corporate bonds. And not just um, ETFs or exchange traded funds, which are basically a way of buying into the overall market um, of corporate bonds and sort of the, that money would then just kind of lift that overall corporate bond market, which in itself is like an artificial stimulation at the top level, not the employee level of these companies. Um, but what it allows for is the companies to buy um, more of their own debt, basically by retiring it and issuing new debt um, at cheaper levels because the Fed also brought rates back to zero. So what we've seen in the past six months is a more than doubling of the amount of new debt that companies have taken on because they know that the Fed is going to buy some of it. And the fact that the Fed is going to buy some of it actually makes it look more valuable than it is because then other investors are like, well, if the Fed's buying it, we'll buy it because the Fed's buying it. And anything that has a demand you know, can potentially go up, so we'll sort of ride that. So now you have this sort of bigger ride-up bubble. The Fed has bought things recently, um, pivoting from just buying exchange-traded funds, which was how they managed to sneak into the CARES Act, the ability to even buy any kind of corporate bonds, which they never have done before, um, the ability to buy individual corporate bonds. So the way they sneaked around that sort of 
rule and created their own loophole was they said, you know, we won't buy any old bond. We'll buy bonds from an index of bonds that, by the way, we'll create. So we're going to look at 748 companies. We're going to call it an index of corporate bonds, and we're just going to buy individual bonds. Now, when you select 748 companies, most of the companies you're going to be buying will be proportionally to larger companies. So the Fed's basically buying things like you know, CVS, like Boeing, like Disney, like Apple, who certainly don't need the money um, in an effort to somehow prop up the corporate bond market, which also props up Wall Street because they have loans extended to these companies. And so they're more sure they'll get these loans paid back, especially and if we have another round or something of a crisis um, relative to this pandemic or others. Um, and so they basically get to issue more debt for which they get fees. So all of that was a different way of giving back uh, to the Wall Street community, to corporations, to increase this, this debt problem um, that now will present more risk to the real economy um, than we had before this pandemic. So all they've really done is sort of grow this snowball at the top of this mountain, um, which will go more quickly down um, if things get worse. And, and it becomes just a vicious cycle, the Fed buying things they don't need to buy. I mean, go to Disney. You don't have to, like, buy Disney stock, you know, it's, it's open in, in, in parts of the country. But, but the point is, it's not their purview, but it does help banks and these companies at the top level. And it doesn't go to the employee level. And they're not barred from um, using uh, some of this money to uh, pay dividends to their investors as well. Uh, Jerome Powell said that they're free to do that. Um, okay, so finally, what? how does this translate to uh, the average American? Like, at what point does the Fed realize, okay, we've gone too far, enough is enough? How far can they go? And finally, how is this going to impact the average American? Yeah, so in terms of what Jerome Powell has said, uh, they have no limit. Um, there, there, there's Jesus. no actual legislative limit. There, there's no... Federal Reserve Act limit, and the Federal Reserve Act has kind of been blown out of the water in terms of its you know, multiple mandates from its inception to uh, when it was reconstructed to have a dual mandate for um, helping employment levels and, and sort of price stability. They've, they've gone way past their uh, their purview anyway. Um, so there really actually is no limit um, in terms of when the Fed will realize that this money is going disproportionately into the market rather than the real economy, and that might create bubbles down the road or that that could be a problem with respect to risk. Um, all they would have to do is like watch, you know, CNBC, Bloomberg, pick up a newspaper and notice uh, that, you know, for example, the Nasdaq's at all time highs and the real economy um, is, is struggling more than it has since the great depression. So um, I don't think there's going to be like a wake up moment that it, there's, if, 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 if it hasn't happened yet, um, it's it's just not going to happen. And what that means is that um, the only thing that might happen is that some sense of stability comes to the markets and that makes the Fed sort of step off of the gas of inflating their own books and buying all these assets um, only so they can reserve that right, that ability um, later down the road uh, when and if it's needed. So, you know, there can be a, a temporary stoppage. But even before this pandemic, we, we were at almost uh, similar levels to the height of the financial crisis on the Fed's book. And that's before they added a whole slew of other assets that they could buy. So um, I, I don't I just I don't I don't see that wake up moment happening. Man, this is just so devastating. And, um, you know, I just want to let our audience know that 
what Nando said about us fighting over crumbs is absolutely true. Um, we are unlikely to get a, uh, a new round of stimulus that uh, includes the more robust version of unemployment. And this is going to impact uh, housing in America as well. So according to uh, recent studies, and this was published in CNBC, almost one third of U.S. households, that's 32 percent, have not made their full housing payment for July yet. And that's Jesus. according to a survey by our uh, apartment list, an online rental platform. About 19 percent of Americans made no housing payment at all during the first week of the month, and 13% paid only a portion of their rent or mortgage. Renters are especially vulnerable. 36% of renters who are, uh, who are more likely to work in industries devastated by coronavirus miss their July housing bill compared to 30% of homeowners. And so I bring all this up, uh, you know, keeping in mind that this was during a time when Congress did allocate some financial relief to ordinary Americans. And now we're hearing from Republicans that, well, would you look at that? There's just, we've spent too much. And so we're not going to really help the way that we did before. We just want to reopen the economy and get people back to work, even though uh, the virus and the pandemic is completely out of control at this point. Yeah, it's 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 so sad because the, the reality is um, any of these numbers are apparent, you know, and, and they're not just numbers. They're actual people. They're people who can't pay their rent because they don't have jobs. Um, and, and they're people that can't pay their mortgage payments and that are facing potential foreclosures because there's no official moratorium on those foreclosures. So, again, we're seeing um, you know, a bigger crisis for real people at the, at the main street of this economy um, just, just developing in front of our eyes. And it goes back to the you know, Republicans, Democrats, arguing about um, you, you know, the crumbs of how a, a, a stimulus package, a, a fiscal stimulus package can look without literally looking at these numbers and and, and Adopting the philosophy that if, if, if people at the foundational levels of our economy um, can't pay their bills, they also can't spend into the economy because they don't have the money because their jobs were either taken away from them or severely curtailed. And we don't know how long that's going to last. Um, and, and yes, you can, you know, going back to the, the prior question, yeah, um, you, you can create money um, and appropriate money if it's absolutely understood that it's a necessity um, to have a foundational economy at least at least to, to some extent stabilized um, before you worry about what's happening at the top. But that's just not the philosophy. Um, it's certainly not the philosophy with respect to Republicans. It's honestly not the philosophy um, that seems to be coming from, from most of the Democrats either. Um, but, you know, it all depends on you know, what happens in the election and so forth and how those houses and, and how the Senate might, might, might remain or, or swing. But, you know, it's still a philosophy that isn't quite embraced on the Hill, um, that you can help all of the economy by disproportionately helping the main street economy relative to what's gone down in the wake of all these crises um, for the sort of upper echelons of the economy. All right, Nomi Prinz, um, thank you so much for explaining uh, such complex uh, issues to us. Yeah. I think it's important for people to keep an eye on what's happening with monetary policy. It will impact us. I mean, it's already impacting us negatively, but it's going to get worse. Um, again, thank you so much for taking the time, and I hope you'll come on again in the future. Thank you so much. Of course. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to have a little fun with our SALT segment.
guys. Welcome back to Weekends. Anna and Nando with you. So, Nando, it's time for our salt segment. And um, yes. you proposed the topic this week, so I'm really curious what your uh, take is. It's on Alan Dershowitz, good friend of uh, Jeffrey Epstein, good friend of Ghislaine Maxwell, who was Epstein's girlfriend. And, and um, good friend of he me had- and you. No, definitely not a good friend of me, of me at least, uh, and I highly doubt good friend of yours. But um, so Ghislaine Maxwell, who was Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend, has been arrested. She was found in New Hampshire, of all places. I thought maybe she would be in a different country, but uh, she is now uh, facing some pretty serious charges uh, pertaining to Jeffrey Epstein uh, and how she assisted him, allegedly, on preying on underaged girls. With that said, Alan Dershowitz, who seems to be a very good friend of Ghislaine Maxwell, has uh, penned an op-ed in The Spectator where he says, (laughs) the Ghislaine Maxwell I know, like every other uh, arrested person, she must be presumed innocent. And so I'll give you a few excerpts from what he writes. She stands accused of serious crimes allegedly committed a quarter of a century ago. Like every other arrested person, she must be presumed innocent. Many in the public will presume her guilty because of the portrayal of her in the Netflix series about Jeffrey Epstein. But no one should believe anything they saw in that series because it was based largely on the accounts of two women with histories of making dubious accusations. Now, since we're talking about people with um, uh, dubious histories, uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, relied on smearing the reputations of women who came forward with these types of accusations in the past. So just keep that in mind for context. He mentions specifically Virginia Roberts uh, Goutre, who um, has accused uh, Prince Andrew of sleeping with her or, or, or basically statutory rape because she was underage. And so, you know, I, I, I tried to watch that Netflix series. It was just too disturbing, to be honest with you, Nando. So like after an episode and a half, I was like, uh, yeah. The stuff I cover for news is disturbing enough. I don't need to be consuming this uh, during my free time. But what do you make of this op-ed? Well, it's just... So Alan Dershowitz is just a very funny character in American life. And he's almost like a a, a Zelig figure, you know, like that Woody Allen documentary Zelig, where he just kind of like exists in all the little episodes of the last 40 years. Like he's just kind of there in some way, like he was OJ's lawyer, you know, he, Mm -hmm. he's just like, he gets trotted out in front of the TV cameras every time there's like some issue with Israel to, to defend like the most hawkish position, pro Israel position. Um, he's, he's, you know, he was Harvey Weinstein's lawyer. Like he just is there kind of in the upper echelon of our ruling class existing as this kind of figure that, that we get to glimpse at because he's for whatever reason, loves to be quoted in the media and loves to be public about all this stuff. Like, you know, the, the opening paragraph of, of that article that he wrote in the spectator is like, I was introduced by, to Ghislaine Maxwell by the, by the, by the Rothschild family. And I've only ever hung out with her in front of the, the, the Clintons and Nobel prize winners. And like, you know, it's like, you know, he was just, he's basically like giving away the game right there that he's just this kind of figure that exists <laughs> 
within the ruling class, maybe, probably because he's willing to do all the dirty work for them. Um, but he, mm-hmm. he can't really help himself, so he always wants to be out there in the public, in a way, being a, a sort of lightning rod like, or a shock absorber, right? Like, I, I think maybe he, he plays the role of, like, I'm going to go out there, I'll be the front line of defense, I'll take all the hate because I'm this weird you know, person who doesn't mind that or maybe gets off on it or something. But I'll absorb all the hate while you guys can just stay private in the background, in the shadows. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll cover for you. Um, so, yeah, because, you know, it's, it, there's no other explanation to me as to why he constantly puts himself out there like this. Like, he tweeted out like, well, you know, I, I hope there are videos uh, that Epstein took about all the, all the sex traffickers. You'll, you'll find that I'm not in it. So, like, please, uh, law enforcement, find the videos, you know? And it's like, it's just like, he's, he's almost like, it's almost, it reminds me of uh, that, the Jinx documentary with Robert Durst. Like, he's, he's like itching to confess you know, and he's just kind of t- oh, to- that's an interesting take. towing around, you know, like and 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 not really going it. But yeah, I mean, that's that's I think what's 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 going on kind of on on a on a deeper level is that like Alan Dershowitz, you know, who's like a f- hilariously pathetic human being, somehow is I mean, he's like disgusting, you know, like he's just like an awful human being, like but somehow he's in this like ultra elite club that you and I are not a part of. Yep. Um, and I think that's why. I think that's what he does. It's like he's like, I will bear the brunt, you know, so that you guys can be in the shadows and protected. Well, he he was, uh, you know, one of the lawyers representing Jeffrey Epstein, uh, who secured that non-conviction conviction, if I remember it correctly. He basically, he got uh, Jeffrey Epstein uh, let him get off with like a, a state charge so he wouldn't have to deal with a lengthy um, federal uh, conviction and sentence. And um, he also has put out some pretty questionable things in regard to statu- uh, a statutory rape that I-, I can't even believe he published this and then doubled down on it later. So um, in 1997... <laughs> He wrote an op-ed that argued against statutory rape laws, writing, quote, there must be criminal sanctions against sex with very young children, but it is doubtful whether such sanctions should apply to teenagers above the age of puberty since voluntary sex is so common in their age group. And then he suggests that uh, 15 was a reasonable age of consent no matter how old the partner was. So in his mind, and he he put this on paper in 1997, he argued as long as the girl's 15, doesn't even matter how old the guy is. He could be like 65 sleeping with a 15 year old and that no one should question that. (laughs) No one should find an issue with that. And when that came up in the middle of the Jeffrey Epstein story, like really blowing up, um, he decided to double down and he said the following. I stand by the constitutional, not moral argument I offered in my controversial op-ed. If a 16-year-old has the constitutional right to have an abortion without state or parental interference, how could she not have the constitutional right to engage in consensual sex? So, um, yeah, there are, first of all... He's begging to confess, right? Like, he's just begging to confess. It's just like he's putting it out there. And again, I think he serves this... This sort of almost like a vanguard party role for the ruling class. Like he's the guy putting himself out there. Maybe he has like some sort of weird humiliation fetish or something that he likes to just get this like public hate. But uh, he he's the one putting himself out there to cover for the sick, disgusting pedophiles that actually rule our society, right? Um, 
that's that's just like it's it's so painfully obvious to me in in some ways. Obviously, you can never prove that this is all just wild speculation. Um, but that that's like what I think is going on. Where and like like remind, it's worth remembering like Dershowitz, who was defending Jeffrey Epstein, was one of the guys who got him that plea deal. And as part of that plea deal, they they gave immunity immunity not just to Jeffrey Epstein, but to anyone who was a co-conspirator of Jeffrey Epstein that was either named or not named in the original indictment, right? Like, it's insane. Like, I don't even know that that's legal. Like, to just, like, anyone who was involved in this specific thing is immune. And anyone who we don't even know, like, we're not even talking about in this specific charge who was also involved is also immune. You know, like, the, the... the brazenness of it is mm-hmm. it's almost like the last segment right the brazenness of just like they can with a wave of a pen just funnel trillions of dollars just seemingly out of magic you know out of thin air just trillions of dollars mm-hmm. here you go no strings attached just do with it what you will buy a yacht you know buy a, a private island to do weird uh, sex cult things on and 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 the brazenness of this whole epstein thing right like it's just it's it 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 Again, it just reinforces the the feeling that we're arguing about crumbs. I mean, right, like, what are the two things like the discourses have been arguing? I mean, we're, we've been arguing about goya beans, and we've been arguing about the, the free speech letter. It's like, meanwhile, all this stuff is just happening at the highest levels, and we have very, very little power. So, like, it just, I, it, I, I don't want it to to fall into like I, I don't agree with like falling into like a sort of like nihilistic despair like there's there's nothing to do about it it just i think we should just stop arguing about bullshit Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. look at the real thing like the the ruling class in this country has so much more power than we care that we can like process in our brains and we need to focus on that we need to focus obsessively on that and stop focusing on each other and all this stuff like this, this is all just we're all just kind of cosplaying politics we're not doing actual politics yeah. the real politics is existing there yeah look i, I think i think so. one of the best um conversations on the jacobin youtube channel is with matt chrisman where he like really does break down like what led to so-called cancel culture right and it's just like that feeling of powerlessness where you feel like yeah. you're doing something through this cancel culture rhetoric on social media, but in reality, it's not doing anything to fundamentally change the system that that we're we're trying to change and fight back against. And you're right. Like when I saw, so my my partner mentioned the Goya story to me the other night, like you know before it really blew up, and I just said, I, I don't I don't care. I just don't care. Um, yeah, who because cares? It, okay, I hate Trump. Like I don't like Trump, but. Some, of course, of course, some CEO is going to love Trump and support Trump. Trump's been great to CEOs. And so, sure, if, if boycotting the beans or whatever products, um, you know, you've been purchasing from Goya, if you've been purchasing stuff from Goya, makes you personally feel better, makes you feel like you're doing something ethical, cool. But just understand that that doesn't do anything to fundamentally change the system. And it also doesn't do anything when an entire like news cycle is dedicated to that story, right? It's a distraction. And um, yeah, it's been it's been frustrating. Look, I've been personally struggling with balancing the news stories that everyone wants to know about, everyone wants to watch, right? Go yeah. go to go to the Young Turks YouTube channel. The stuff that matters, yeah. it'll get, you know, maybe tens of thousands of views. 
the nonstop salacious or like controversial stuff, the cancel culture stuff, the Donald Trump is dumb stuff blows up hundreds of thousands of views. And it's frustrating. It really is frustrating because we need to just shift the focus back onto the stuff that matters. And I think just looking at the view counts of what does well gives you a sense of why we've been losing. And so what can we do to get people back on track, get people on track, not back on track, get people on track to focus on the right things? Yeah, I mean, the, the culture war is it's 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 a very powerful thing. It, yeah. it absolutely sells. It's like, you know, the, the old adage that sex sells. No, the culture war sells, you know, like that's that's the reality that we live in these days. Like if you just if you're an active soldier in the culture war, you your brand will be reinforced. Your personal brand will be improved. That's just a reality that we live in today. Um, and you're right, like the, 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 the cancel culture stuff, which is like, of course, very real. Like anyone who's worked in media can speak to that. Like anyone who denies that it's a real thing is lying. And it's not, the, it's not just that it's not doing anything to ch- change politics in this country. It's, doing, it's reinforcing the powerlessness that we feel. I mean, yeah, the only thing we have is our numbers, right? The only thing that we have is that we're more than them, right? That's literally the only thing we have. Everything else is nothing. We don't have anything else. So, and they have everything. They have all the power. Um, so to re, to, we have to tr- transcend that and refocus on who the real bad guys yeah. are, you know, who the real enemy is. Yeah, and, because people it, it, overall, like said, it's, it's hard. people overall, regardless of how much you agree with their political views, People have their bad moments. Um, Humans suck. We're pretty vicious, um, uncivilized animals. And that's not to say that, uh, you know, we should fear people or, or write people off. Quite the opposite. I think that we need to be honest with ourselves about who we are when we're pointing the finger at others and judging others, right? And so, look, there are definitely examples of people who have done vicious, terrible things. It's been caught on camera and, you know, they deserve to be called out. But that's very different from, oh, I feel unsafe in my workplace because my coworker has a different political opinion on this cultural issue than I do. No, that's, but that's wrong because ultimately you two are on the same side when it comes to the issues that matter. So have a dialogue, get the hell off of Twitter. Like the, the public shaming of colleagues on Twitter, I cannot stand. I can't stand it. Yeah. it nothing triggers me more than that because that, that yeah. really is personal brand building. Let's keep it real. Because yeah. you could easily have a dialogue with your coworker. You could easily bring this up to your colleague and say, hey, we have a disagreement here. Um, let's have a discussion. But I think that there is purposely uh, this strategy of making a big deal about it on social media because it grows your personal brand. And let's be honest about that. And that yeah. does nothing to better society at all. No. And again, the, the incentives are twisted because really our personal brand is all we got these days, right? There, there's no more good jobs out there. The economy is in a free for all. If you have a personal brand, you can maybe more or less survive in, in the current economic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, situation that we're in. Like the incentives are there to do that. Like they're, they're just sitting right in front of you. That's what social media does. That's what the internet does. Like I remember years ago, like thinking about this whole cancel culture debate. Like I remember years ago, some ESPN reporter, it was a woman, 
was caught on tape uh, because her car got towed and she went to the towing company that towed her car and she said some awful things to the towing person, right? Um, and to the towing company. She said something, you know, like nasty things that no one, you know, like that aren't, it's embarrassing if they're caught on camera. And, you know, she got like a barrage of hate. And I'm thinking like, do you understand? Like that was her, like that was probably like her worst moment you know like your car just got towed also like these the car towing companies where it's like it's actually outsourcing this public thing to a private corporation that then charges you has to charge you cash to get your car back instead of like giving you the opportunity it's it's a giant scam Mm -hmm. it's just this whole thing is awful and it's just a very unpleasant thing to go through and she was having a bad day and she reacted poorly and it was caught on camera and she got like that's defined her life since then like the worst like think about the worst thing you have ever done anna in your life the worst thing you've ever said to someone in your life and if that were caught on camera and aired to the whole world like you know no one can survive that kind of scrutiny and that's what the internet and social media has done is it's heightened that kind of that instinct that we have in as humans in some way to to like go after each other and you know like to to, to score points over each other I and mean, to it's, incentivize it's, it's, uh, vigilante surveillance state. I mean, are we all comfortable with that? Totally. Like, who the hell wants to go out? Like, I'm terrified to go out because I mean, first of all, everyone's super tense, and when I say go out, I mean like even go for a walk uh, because everyone's yeah. tense. I feel like every I see like people provoking each other in certain ways. I mean, I went to go pick up a prescription at CVS weeks ago. And as I was waiting in line at CVS, I'm like, oh, my God, something's about to like erupt. I can feel it. Um, And everyone's got their phones and everyone's incentivized because of the social media culture to catch someone in their worst moment and make a big deal about it. Right. And I I just, we got to ask ourselves what kind of society we want to live in. Do we want to live in constant fear? And you're right. I mean, we've all had our bad moments. I'm not in any way trying to excuse, you know, some of the horrible, um, you know, racism that's taken place throughout this country. There's definitely a societal issue with that. Um, But it's a societal issue. Uh, Focusing on one particular person, yeah, that'll destroy that person's life. That might make you feel better momentarily, right? Or temporarily, I should say. But is it really doing anything to change um, the way we treat one another uh, on on a mass scale? And I, I just don't see that happening. I feel like people are worse to one another today than ever before. Um, You know, in the way that they talk to each other and the way that there's like no empathy, Anyway, uh, yeah, every, everyone, everyone's on edge, yeah. everyone's on edge and everyone is being watched all the time. Like those two things are just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Well, um, I did not expect to have that conversation after the Dershowitz, uh, you know, salt segment, but I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did. And, um, Kale, why don't you jump in? Because I'm sure, uh, we have a few questions in the super chat section. Yeah. So I don't think we do at the moment, but if anyone wants to ask a super chat question, uh, we are taking them. You can put them in the chat and I will read them off. Um, Today was a real rogues gallery of the worst of our ruling class. Uh, Thanks for all these segments up against each other. And um, I had no idea that the the CEO of Goya, who makes $1.1 billion, or his net worth (laughs) is $1.1 billion and employs 4,000 people, would be pro-Trump. That. I, I learned Listen, something today, too. So <laughs> I really appreciate you guys. 
the the brands are not your friends. The the companies are not your friends. They're not progressive. They're not woke. They're cosplaying that thing just to like sell you stuff. Like don't fall for that crap. Like and it's just the people when people are like what has this company's statement been on Black Lives Matter? It's like, I don't care. Like, I don't care I, what I, Reebok says how? about Black Lives Matter or what Bacardi says about Black Lives Matter. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter. But why are we encouraging, why are we encouraging corporations to pander? Like, that's essentially what it is. Because You're we're children. Them. Because our society is full of children. We've created a society of children. That's why, like, we can't have movies that are, like, morally complex because we can't handle it you know like we've created a society of children it's just like that's what is at the end of the day i don't know nanda i would i would push back in in two ways though the first is that uh well on the on the children i mean i'm all all power to the workers and the people i'm a vulgar workerist at this point oh, yeah. <laughs> and like and i think honestly like you know the shitty movies that come out today it's more to the fact that just like the way that hollywood you've Hollywood still exists after all of this. The way that the movie industry works and the fact that no one has any time to actually like go see movies. You just you're gonna go see something mm. that you know you want to watch. You're not gonna like you're not gonna take a risk on like some art house film or something. Um, and then it's also it's like it comes off as pretentious too. Um, I don't know, I forget what the other point was. But there is a super chat question. Um, uh, what do you think about people getting fired for saying racist things on camera? I guess that's what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the the racism thing is is yeah. a lot more. I think it's a lot more difficult to answer because I see that as different from because if someone is truly racist, right, and you have uh, like a diverse workforce or a diverse company, that's a that's that is a problem. That's a big problem. Okay, so, but we also have to think about like when you fire someone you're also um, taking away income that that individual's family members rely on, right? And so people, just by being associated with that individual, um, might lose access to food, to housing, to all of that. And so is there maybe a, a potential for a learning experience, right? And look, this I feel like what I'm saying right now is going to, because of the climate we're in, it's going to lead to a little bit of pushback, and that's fine. I'm, I'm open to you know dealing with that and having a dialogue about that. But we just need to think about, okay, what's the best option in this situation? In other cases, though, I don't know what you guys think, but I just see a lot of nonsense um, about, oh, this person should be let go or they should be fired because they said something 25 years ago or... Uh, there's a tweet from 2009. Like I saw that they were trying to cancel Jameel Hill over something she had tweeted literally in 2009. And, you know, she took ownership of it. And guess what? People are allowed to change. People are allowed to grow. I certainly hope I've grown since 2009. And I don't want anyone judging me based on who I was in 2009. I want people to look at me now and see the growth and see the progress. Um, yeah. So that's where I come at from that. Yeah, that I mean, question. there's 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 cases of like baseball players that were drafted and they said like some horrible thing. They tweeted out some horrible thing when they were like 14, and then that like you know they were literally they were they were kids, you know, when they did it, and they and like it, that is still affecting them today as as professional adults. You know, the thing about like whether you whether you should be fired for saying something racist on camera, like it, I, I my answer is like non satisfactory. Is that there is no blanket thing like it depends like it depends on a million yeah. things you know because 
certain things, like, okay, would you fire someone for saying, like, all lives matter, for example? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that has been coded as, like, racist. It's a new, it's a, it's a, it's a newer thing, though, right? Like, what if they tweeted that, like, 10 years ago, like, where it wasn't, where it wasn't part of the, it hadn't entered part of the, the discourse or the lexicon of 2020, right? It, it, there's, and, it, and you're, you're getting into very, very kind of wishy-washy waters if you just kind of apply some sort of bit broad standard on like whether you should be fired for saying something racist. I mean, like there is, there is interpretations to be had. I mean, there's some of them are not like, obviously if you say like, you know, there's some things you can say that are not up to interpretation, but there's some things that are, and then who has the power to make those interpretations? You know, who, who ultimately is the person who is making those decisions? I mean, that's, that's what we really got to think about and we got to be careful of. Yeah. Well, that's actually, so the thing that I forgot about earlier that I, it's relevant to this as well is the fact that like, I think the corporations totally are woke in the sense of like, they actually do believe in anti-racism. They actually do believe in diversity. The problem is that like, they're operating a business in a market that they're more concerned about their, their profits at the end of the day. And so like all of that, like any virtue that comes along with anti-racism and diversity, and there certainly are a ton, obviously, um, it gets filtered through that lens. And so, you know, would you rather have your HR department deciding if something is anti-racist or your union with a, a proper grievance mm. policy? And then mm. when you have like, you know, a, a union, like you also develop a culture of solidarity among its, among membership, not necessarily, not uh, every time, but far more likely and a healthy democratic union would that, uh, you know, coworkers are seeing each other as brothers and sisters looking out for one another rather than, uh, you know, pitting one, you know, actually doing the boss's work of pitting yourself against others and fighting against each other in the labor market. Um, and, you know, I think like in a socialist society, the kind of the, you know, what would we say, what would happen in a better world? Sure. I mean, like, I'm sure like you obviously would need to push back against racist or um, bigoted statements, but, you know, when it comes to cancel culture, for instance, like, the question is, does this get get in the way of like the relevant work at hand or the relevant task at hand? Like, is what someone is saying actually like encumbering their ability to work with others or like, mm -hmm. do we have freedom of speech? Like not just in public society, but like all of society. Well, that's, I mean, the, the, the big point that you made there is that like the, if it's put in the hands of HR departments, we're going to be in, we're going to have, it's going to boomerang back and affect poor working people. I mean, that's just the reality of it. HR doesn't work for you. It works for management. That's just a fundamental thing. They to don't prevent care lawsuits about and things like that. Well, yeah, and exactly. they're going to be extra cautious when it comes to these types of accusations and probably go overboard in terms of punishment or, or firings because they want to avoid a lawsuit. I mean, that's right. one of the main purposes of HR. Yeah. Right. So like if, if there was in, in a situation in which there was a, like you said, a large, robust, healthy labor union and some worker in the union got caught saying something uh, racist on camera and then the labor union got together and they decided that that worker should be expelled for whatever reason. I more, that's, that's a healthier way to deal with it than if like you just leave that decision up to the bosses, which is what it is, what it is now, you know, and like there'd be the ones interpreting whatever the person said is racist or not, or, you know, or a fireable offense or not. And that just giving them that power, giving them more power over us to fire us is just, I think it's just counterproductive. It's just going to end up hurting more than it, than it, than it helps.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I'm just, let's do, um, let's see, it's a couple more super chat questions. Um, pulling them up over here. Um, so one of them, a little more philosophical. I'm interested what you guys think. Uh, Champagne Communista asks, mm. do you think that some people are born evil or do you think that terrible people are actually just a product of a sick society? Uh, I'll let you guys start off with that one. This is not the right time to ask me that question because I'm not in a good, <laughs> I'm honestly not in a healthy mindset. I'm, I'm, I'm literally um, working with a therapist on it because I don't want to think this way. But if I were to be completely honest with you right now um, in this unhealthy mindset, I just, I have trouble believing that all people are inherently good. I think that there are people that can't be saved. Like, but I, I want to be wrong and I want to believe that, yeah, I mean, we do live in a system that uh, incentivizes bad behavior. Um, and I, I want to, I want to believe that and I'm working toward it. You know, I, <laughs> I, 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 think, that, I think that human beings broadly respond to uh, incentives that are, uh, that are in, present in the society and, um, that, and then you just see that like across different societies and across history, right? That if, if the incentives are, are, are set up in a way that promote mutual help, mutual aid, that people will rise to the occasion. And, 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 and I think that when you're seeing, you see it often in things like the, this, this pandemic, right? Where I, you see both very genuine and inspiring um, displays of human empathy and solidarity and mutual aid, um, and then you see awful behavior. And I think at the, at the core of it, it's, it's what, you know, people at some level like to feel like they're being led. And what we're seeing here in this country is a total abdication of leadership um, to a point where um, I think people are left up to their own devices. And I, and I think people are scared and confused. And, and I think that in that situation, people will do very, very awful things. I generally, though, do believe in the inherent goodness of people. Um, I've seen it, you know. I've, 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 I've witnessed it, especially in in very poor, awful society, like you know, in in a, in a very, very poor, extreme, like you know, like in the slums of Rio de Janeiro, or you know, like you see just kind of like these very, very inspiring displays of of, of mutual aid and solidarity, and people kind of plowing ahead despite this awful situation that they're living living in um so i to answer that question i generally believe in 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 the inherent goodness of people there are there is but there are bad people i mean that that's that's also true (laughs) a lot of them um and to just to add on that though i mean yeah i would i would agree for this for this particular topic i think i i lean more on nando's side um and i would say that i think like people are ex ante good that uh it's going into a situation I think we're social creatures. We want to, you know, we depend on other people. We want uh, to care for other people, whether it's family, friends, but I think a broader network of people as well. Uh, and I think given good choices to to be amicable or to be nice or to be considerate of others or to, uh, yeah, that I think people genuinely do want to do what we can, what we would consider ethically good. It's just that largely most of the choices that people face, like, on labor markets, on commodity markets, just like in your life, like in the workplace, in public society as well. Like it's mostly bad choices right now, especially when you have half the country unemployed, especially when like there's a pandemic, like 
it just it makes everything so much more constricting and uh, and harder to to get by. And so you you do end up saying, you know what, screw this. I'm going to take care of myself or my family first before anyone else. And because like that's just kind of rational, logical survival techniques. But I think given in a better in a better society, in a socialist society uh, where needs are met, I think people would by and large be making choices that are to the betterment of others as well. Um, and I think that's yeah. why like there's even like like a political project like socialism is even a possibility. Yeah, look, I largely agree with you guys. And, and you know, when I'm thinking about people, I, what, what I'm actually thinking about isn't just like the average person who commits a crime out of desperation. I, I think about what the Buffalo, New York police did in literally shoving an elderly man to the ground, watching him bleed out of his ear and refusing to offer him any help. Like how, you know, I guess I just didn't realize until fairly recently, like the extent of that brutality, the extent of that culture, right? I never bought into the few bad apples nonsense when it came to uh, cops, but I just, I never thought I would see um, these militarized cops shove an elderly man to the ground and refuse to offer him any help as he's bleeding out of his ear. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that I'm kind of like trying to deal with and cope with mentally and not like allow those types of stories to skew my image uh, or my, my perspective on humans in general. I do think that once you provide a system with the right incentives and, you know, needs are met, I do think that people are generally good. Mm -hmm. Except for the ruling class. They're, <laughs> they're actually yeah. just straight up evil. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that, I think that's a good place to leave it. Actually, if All you right. guys want to close us out, so. All right, thank you, Kale, and thank you, Nando, um, for thank jumping you. in for Michael this week. Um, I always love hosting shows with you. We've done so many on TYT, and then um, we used to do a show on Fusion together, which was yes. fun traveling around yes. the country like four years ago. Um, but anyway, I hope everyone else enjoyed. Um, make sure you check out Nando on social media. Make sure you check out his podcast. Can you talk about that real quick? Yeah, it's the most important podcast in the history of the world. It's an Entourage rewatch podcast that we've been doing for a few months in the quarantine. Uh, it's called Let's Pot It Out, an Entourage podcast. We, my co-host and I, we basically just go through every single episode and we talk about it because Entourage, in a way, is the perfect way to look at the near past, you know, what America was like in the early 2000s. And it's got some, it's funny, it's surprising. It's, uh, yeah, it's worth listening to. Check it out. And we'll have you right. on it. I, I we'll have you on to break up, to, to break you, down Nando. Entourage, to discuss um, what it is that those dudes are up to. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, you've had some of my colleagues on, but you haven't had me on yet. Um, and I called you out for it. But, I thought, you were, uh, too big. You, I thought you were too big for us, Ada. That's, that's really oh, what please, it was. Get out of here. Get out of here. Um, true. Anyway, <laughs> thank you, Nando. Thank you, Kale, thank you. for helping us uh, put this show together. Um, special thanks to Jacobin for creating this space for this show. And everyone, have an awesome weekend. Stay strong. Keep fighting. And we'll see you next week.